Listener Production. I'm Action Alexa, former college American football player and wrestler turned half Ironman competitor. I've recovered from alcoholism and managed to die on the operating table four times. And now I'm a strength coach and motivational speaker. And I'm Jenna Louise, an ex-competitive gymnast and BMX racer, now a multidisciplined, high-performance athlete and coach. Over the course of our careers within the fitness industry, we've seen firsthand the impact that physical strength and mental toughness can have in changing the course of people's lives. In our podcast, How Fitness Saved My Life, we invite people to share the stories and practical skills of how they built their physical, mental and emotional fitness and how that saved them at the hardest time of their life. I could see this tangled up red parachute just in a ball in front of me. So it wasn't above us where it's supposed to be. It wasn't open. It wasn't catching air. It wasn't slowing us down. And I could see how close the ground was. I was like, oh, we're not stopping. Like, this this is it. And as far as I knew in that moment, I was like, oh, I'm about to die. Today's guest is a true testament to the power that mental fortitude and physical strength can have on recovery. M. Carey was enjoying an adrenaline-filled holiday when a freak skydiving accident left her completely paralysed from the waist down. It was her incredible force of will and mental strength that enabled her to rebuild her body and ultimately save her life, learning to walk again in the process. M. tells us how she handled such a traumatic and life-changing event and how she's come out the other side to be the incredible human she is today. Oh my gosh, she's bubbly, she's humble, she's super creative and she's been on an incredible life-altering journey. She's much more than the girl who fell from the sky. M. Carrie, we are so thrilled to have you here. What an entrance. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Not dramatic at all. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, so excited to be here. Well, look, I was super nervous to have you on here because you're just an incredible human and your story is so unbelievable. Like, I don't think inspiring does it justice. And I really want to make sure that it's told the right way, you know? Yeah. Um, and I feel like you are the best person to tell it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. No, I love that. So I don't often share my story on podcasts because... Yeah, it's kind of one of those things you don't want to become your story or one thing that happened to you. But I love with the right people. I love sharing my story. And I know that you guys will do that. And we're so reluctant to even just say story because it's part of life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just part of your life. Yeah, yeah. So when I was 20 is when this part of my story begins. Mm. So I was backpacking around Europe. And before I even left for this trip, I always just knew that when I got to Switzerland, I wanted to go skydiving. Skydiving was just something I'd always wanted to do. Have you guys done it? By the I way? have. Oh. Twice. I've oh, done great. it once and, you know, I absolutely loved it and I've always thought that I'd do it again. Yeah. I was absolutely loving it, like I imagine most people do when I was falling. I just remember thinking, like, this is such a thrill, such a good feeling. And I didn't feel scared. I didn't, I just was loving it. And then... So the instructor tells you beforehand that they're going to give you a tap on the shoulder and that means they're going to pull the chute. So I felt the tap on my shoulder, waited to feel the chute, and then kind of just nothing really happened. Like I felt a bit of a tug, but we didn't start to slow down. And because I'd never done it before, I didn't know what it was meant to feel like. Mm. So for the first, God, this all probably happened in a few seconds, but for the first little while I was like, okay, it's fine. Like I'm sure something's about to happen soon. And then we just kept falling. And so I started yelling out to the guy. I was like, hey, are we okay? What's going on? And he wasn't responding at all. So still I was like, okay, I'm sure it's fine. Maybe he just can't hear me. Maybe he's shy. Like I was just, because it's so unexpected. So I was just thinking of all these excuses, but it wasn't until 
I saw, I looked ahead of me and I could see this tangled up red parachute just in a ball in front of me. So it wasn't above us where it's supposed to be. It wasn't open. It wasn't catching air. It wasn't slowing us down. And I thought, oh, okay, like something's definitely going wrong here. And I still kind of had a bit of hope that maybe he could do something to fix it, the instructor. But as we got closer to the ground and I could feel the speed we were going at, which is the same speed we jumped out of, and I could see how close the ground was, I was like, oh, we're not stopping. Like this, this is it. And as far as I knew in that moment, I was like, oh, I'm about to die, which is such a just oh, kind of, in, yeah. <laughs> and I think because I was on, I was on a holiday, I was doing something fun. It was just, just the unexpectedness of it, of like one minute I was fine and the next minute I'm thinking, oh, this is my last 10 seconds left on earth. So that was mind-boggling. But then um, we landed with just an absolute thump on the ground and I landed on my belly and the instructor, because he's strapped to my back, landed on top of me. And um, the first thing I remember thinking, oh, I didn't get knocked unconscious, so I remember all of it, but my first thought was just... <laughs> what the heck? Like <laughs> as if I was in a skydiving accident, like no way, that, oh. that doesn't happen in real life. And then the next thing I remember is just feeling my whole body just be filled with so much pain. Like I didn't know you could feel, oh. I feel like pain isn't even the right word because it doesn't even compare to anything else I'd felt before. And it was just unbearable. And I was screaming out and there was, we're in Switzerland. So we're in a field in the middle of the Alps. There's no one around. So I'm just screaming out and no one's there. And then the next thing I thought, okay, well, it's up to me to go and find help because my instructor still wasn't answering me. He was unconscious. So as far as I knew at that stage, he was dead, but thankfully he wasn't. But I thought, okay, I better get up and go and find help. And then it was in that moment when I tried to kind of roll over to get him off me and try to stand up or just try to do anything at all that I realized I was completely paralyzed. So I was trying to, yeah, I was just trying to like wriggle my toes. Did you, did you know at that point that you were paralyzed? Yeah, so it didn't occur to me like, oh, I must have broken my back. That's why I'm paralyzed. Sure. I was just like, what, how is my body not moving? Because when you've done something, obviously I was, I was 20. So when you've done something for 20 years, you just yeah. think that's how you move. Yeah. That's how, that's, I tell my leg to do that and it does that. So it was just such a bizarre concept to wrap my head around. I was like, why is this not working? Like, what do you mean? How... How can I not move? How can I not roll? How can I not wriggle my toes? So it was, yeah, even though I knew, I just mentally was like, I don't understand what's going on and why I can't move. I have never heard any stories where the person was awake no. for the entire experience. Like yeah. there's nothing that you can listen to where you just said, like, I've never experienced so much pain in my life. Anyone that you speak to or any other story that I've heard that's anywhere near as similar as this, mm the person was unconscious yeah. and so they woke up and they yeah. realised yeah. or, but there's never, like, I find that to me, it's mind-blowing. Totally. And then what my initial thought to this is from the point of you falling and then noticing that you were in pain, was that a delayed, a very delayed feeling? Like, did you yeah. feel the impact? Like, of course, you would have felt the mm -hmm. impact, but, I mean, how much after did you yeah, feel Yeah, I'd say like, it was only honestly like a few seconds, but I'd say that it I was just in shock for the first yeah. little while. I was just okay. like, and I don't know if my body was physically in shock or my mind just literally couldn't comprehend what was happening, but I just, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I just felt nothing but what is going on? And then before I knew it, I was just overwhelmed with pain. So I think I was just in shock. 
And how long before support got to you, like help got to you? So I jumped with my friend Gemma. So she, it was a helicopter, so there was only two of us jumping. It wasn't a big group and they jumped after us. So we had to wait for them and we didn't land where we were meant to land. So we had to wait for her instructor to kind of follow us down. So it probably, again, was only a few minutes, but it felt like such a long time just laying there. But, yeah, probably only a few minutes. And then they... I don't know, they must have called the ambulance because the next people that were there, the the police came and then the ambulance came. And as soon as the ambulance saw us laying there on the ground, they were like, no, we need a helicopter. So then a helicopter came and we got flown out of there. And guy on your back, he was still unconscious at this point? Yeah, he he was still unconscious, but he, yeah, he survived and um, is okay now. But at the time, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Have you ever caught up with the guy? I did see him once. So I was in the Swiss hospital for a month and I really, really wanted to see him before I flew back home. And he wouldn't want to, he didn't see me. Like I asked every day, he didn't want to. And then it was the day I was leaving. I said to the nurses, I was like, please, like I'm leaving. I think it was like half an hour till I had to go. And I was like, I'm about to leave. Please, can you see if he wants to? And then I remember him, he wheeled into my room and I don't even know what we said because to be honest, we probably couldn't even speak much of the same language. Oh, yeah. So, and then we just held hands. He was in his wheelchair. I was in the bed. I didn't really know what his injuries were. I don't think he really knew what mine were. And we just kind of like looked at each other. And it was so bizarre to feel such a bond with someone that was a stranger. I have just a few weeks earlier. Yeah. Know. And it's like, okay, this man, I literally have no idea who he is, but we will always be bound to each other. And we were the only people that experienced, experienced that. that. Yeah. So since that day, you've since found out why the accident happened? Yeah. So I didn't know at the time, but I think it was a few days later in hospital, the police were doing investigations and people were coming into the hospital to talk to me. And they worked out that basically what happened is, so there's two parachutes in the backpack. I don't really know the technical terms, (laughs) but there's one that they the normal one, which is what happens when they they pull the chute and that one comes out and normally that's all you need. But there's also an emergency one which comes out automatically at a certain altitude if for whatever reason the other one isn't out. So I guess if, I don't know, the instructor happened to pass out or something, then the other one would automatically come out at a certain height. But so what happened is my instructor pulled our parachute, I think it was only like one second too late. (sighs) And because of that, the time that he pulled, it happened to be the exact same time the emergency one was coming out. So they came out at the same time. They got all tangled, which is why it was in a ball. And then the cords wrapped around his neck and strangled him. And that's why he was unconscious the whole pull. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, I didn't know at the time why he wasn't answering me. I didn't know if he was trying his best to fix it. But now I know he was unconscious the whole time. Knowing that, did that make you feel differently about, like, Mm. wanting to meet him and, like, feeling that? connection like Mm, not back then back then I was just like oh everyone makes mistakes and it just so happens that in a job like that if you make a mistake it's like gonna be pretty heavy yeah um and I didn't feel any form of anger or anything for years it's probably only been in the like last year or two where I'm like I don't know, just <laughs> a lot's gone on and he hasn't really given an apology of any form. And because in my mind, it's like, oh, you made a huge mistake. You would never let that happen no. again. You would learn so much and you would feel horrible and that's enough of a consequence for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess I've just learned more about him and I'm like, oh, okay. Like maybe I don't need to, wow. you know, spend so much energy wanting 
him to feel okay about it. Maybe I just need to focus on me. And so question then in that, yeah. like, when you get those feelings, which we all do at time to time, mm-hmm. like either anger or resentment, like mm-hmm. something that's really negative that can, you know, alter your mood or your trajectory for the rest of that day, yeah. what do you do? Well, yeah, I used to, I used to think, and I used to be so proud of myself that I never felt angry, not even in regards to that, but to the accident or anything in general. I was like, oh, I never feel angry. And I used to feel anger. I used to see it as such a pointless emotion. I was like, there's nothing anger can teach me and it's just a waste and it just doesn't make you feel good. And then I don't really don't know what changed. But in the last few years, I was like, no, no, no. Like you're allowed to be angry at something that changed your life and you're allowed to grieve a change that you didn't Mm. necessarily ask for. And so... I don't know. I'd say what I do now is nothing really to take that away, that feeling away, but more just to embrace it for what it is and allow myself to feel it. And Go through it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. I went to a Tony Robbins. I don't know if you went yeah, to that we as went, well. We and he talks the about the 90 yeah. second rule, which is like in that moment where you feel anger or fear or resentment, you have 90 seconds with which to go, okay, I acknowledge what I'm feeling. Yeah. And that's cool. I'm allowed to feel that. Yeah. And then you find something that you're grateful for. Oh, I love it, that. They can't coexist. Like fear and anger yeah. and gratitude cannot coexist. Yeah. And that's something I really, yeah. like I try now. But. Yeah. And I love that because you're not just going straight away to, oh, I got to be grateful. I can't feel this anger. You you let yourself feel it first. I, I think it's that. really, I think that's a really, really important point. I think yeah. so many people these days get really caught up in the whole I need to be happy all the time. I need to have a positive outlook. Yeah. Everything is hunky-dory. Life is sunshine and roses. When you know what? It's not. It's not. We have rough days. Yeah, exactly. Right. And we're allowed. It's okay yeah. not to be okay. And, you know, we should embrace it for what it yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. Allow it to happen. Accept it and then choose something else, mm-hmm. you know, like go through the process that you need to go through because you have to grieve at some point. Yeah. In order it's, it's to gonna come recover out. from something. Yeah. yeah. If you don't deal with it then and there, it's just going to come out in another way, whatever yeah. that may be. And yeah. so... Going back to your time in the hospital, you were in there, you said, for a month? I was in the Swiss hospital for right. a month. Okay. And then I got flown back on, I don't even know what you call it, but it was basically just a normal airline. But at this point, I couldn't even sit up without, because my abs were paralyzed too, so I couldn't even sit up without fainting or vomiting. So I had to lay down for the flight. So they basically took out like four rows of seats <laughs> on this normal flight. So next to me, there's just like people going on holiday and I and put a bed in and I had a doctor and a nurse fly back with me to Australia. It was the most bizarre thing, but also like, cool, I get to lay down. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I know, don't we all wish yeah. to have like yeah. extra seats to yeah. lay down on? Maybe not this time around. Yeah, so many people <laughs> are like, oh, you're so lucky. I'm like, hey. yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh um, but yeah, so I flew back to Sydney actually. So I was from, I lived in Canberra at the time, but there's no spinal ward in Canberra. So flew to Prince of Wales in Sydney and I was there for another three months, I think. And you, I read on your Instagram because I did stalk. You've got a very cool Instagram. Incredible. You are so good with your words too. You're very descriptive. Oh, thank you. And articulate. That's honestly my favourite compliment in the world. Because you know when like you want to, there's one thing that you want to be good at. Like for me, it's writing. So when people compliment that, I'm like, thanks. You're amazing. You are. You said in one of your posts, you were like, you really enjoyed like you kind of loved rehab and I can relate yeah. to that because I remember when I had my hip replacement, yeah. I actually really enjoyed the process of being broken down and then having to rebuild yep. back up. Is that mm-hmm. kind of what it was yeah, like? for sure. It's like a sense of purpose. You have something to strive towards. In a hospital, you're given a t- like a literal timetable like you are in school and it's like at 9 o'clock you're doing this, 10 o'clock yeah, you're right. doing this. And so there was physio, there was um, occupational therapy, wheelchair lessons, psychologists, like 
like your day is full every wow. day that you're in there. And I was thinking about that the other day and I was like, maybe that was less about the actual rehab side of that and more about the fact that when you're in a challenge, like it's so nice to feel purpose and to have something, something that you're to striving towards on. and focusing on. Yeah. So, yeah, and yeah, my hospital experience I loved and I was with a friend just five minutes ago and he, we were in hospital together. We met at the same time. We were in there. Yeah, we had accidents at the same time and he had a very different hospital experience. Like he didn't enjoy it at all. So, yeah, so I don't know what it is about that time for me. Well, I imagine it's because I did start to get better and I did start yeah. to see improvements. Like that is possibly what it was for me. But I also do think it was just I had something to work towards. And before my accident, I didn't really, well, I was only 20, but I didn't really know where I was going in life. I didn't have any direction. I didn't have much passion or excitement about anything. Yeah. I was kind of just a really negative person and just someone that took everything for granted and just didn't really know what I had when I had it. So I was just, I think I was just in a bit of a slump at that period in my life. But even on the other hand, a different part of myself was I was super active and fit and my identity was ingrained in that. But you were very athletic, weren't you, prior yeah. to this? You were yeah. a swimmer and a runner. Yeah. Competitive? Yeah, very competitive. Yeah, right. Yeah. But it wasn't, I don't know, I just didn't really know what I was doing in life. So I think just having something to work towards and something to aim for, it really Well, I think as a, as a high performer, mm-hmm. I think that that's something that, most high performers relate to. They need yeah. to have a purpose. They need to have something to focus on mm-hmm. to stay busy. And I think that that's somewhat what you're explaining at the moment yeah. is that, you know, you had something to focus on the entire time and your day was full. Yeah. And as well as you were getting better, you know, yeah. you were making progress. And while that progress might have been small, yeah, it was still progress yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. So coming from a high performance background, what was the stage of realisation that you may never be able to do what you had done previous to your accident Mm -hmm. ever again. What was that realisation like for you and and what were your thought patterns going Mm -hmm. into that? So that was actually one of the biggest, one of the most pivotal moments in my recovery, I think. So when I was in hospital one night, um, this guy that I'd never seen before wheeled in in his wheelchair and I was like, that's weird, I haven't seen him before. And we started chatting and I found out he'd actually had his accident two years earlier and he was just in hospital for something separate. So after two years, he'd got used to life in a wheelchair Mm -hmm. and we were talking all about that. And then we decided to go to the pub next door for dinner and we just got chatting and we started talking about tattoos. And he asked if I would ever get one and I said, yes, I want to get one of the date of my accident, which I have right now, because I feel like it's just a nice reminder that every day I'm alive after that date is essentially extra time that I get to live and not to take it for granted. And then I asked him if he would ever get one and he said he would get one of the date he learned to walk again if that ever happened. And I said, why? And he said, because it would be the day I find happiness. I won't be happy unless I can walk again. Mm. And when he said that, even though at that point I'd probably felt the same. Like we were all striving to walk in hospital. That's what we were all doing in rehab every day, trying to get there. But when he laid it out so simply like that, like I won't be happy unless I can walk again, I was like, wow, like what a gamble. Like what a, you're putting your whole future joy and happiness onto one very specific and sadly probably unlikely thing. Like that's such a risk. And it was in that moment that I realised it wasn't a risk that I wanted to take. 
And so from that moment forward, I put all of my energy into healing mentally and emotionally rather than just physically. I had to reframe walking from something that was my number one goal to something that, yeah, if it happened, like, great, extra bonus. But I didn't want it to be the only thing I was working towards. And I had to, like you were saying before, you had to reframe like, okay, yes, I used to be able to run. I used to be able to swim and do triathlons and all of this. But maybe it's not going to be the worst thing in the world if I can't anymore. Maybe I don't need to put my identity into one specific thing that can be taken away. Like maybe I can create a new identity here and it doesn't mean that it has to be worse. It could be better. Like it's just going to be different. And so that was, yeah, that was a really pivotal moment for me, realizing that I had the power to decide, you know, whether I let that destroy me or not. Such a powerful way to look at that. It is. I remember, Mm. I can really relate Mm. to that because I remember being in hospital after my hip and after always identifying as being someone who is physically strong. Yeah. Like that was such a part of who I was. Yet being in hospital, not being able to do anything and having to essentially teach myself how to walk and stuff again Mm -hmm. as well. Nothing along the lines of what you went through, but... When I was physically at my weakest, I was finding that I had to be mentally Mentally. tough. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And it was an incredible switch. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's hard to just say in the gym if I was to do like, I don't know, squat something. And I used to be able to do 20 times that. In the beginning, it's so hard to be like when the physio says, oh, you're doing so good. Because in your mind, you're like, this isn't good for me. Like, (laughs) you don't know how strong I am. You don't know what I can normally do. And it's so important to just remove that and not compare not compare ourselves to a past version of ourselves because it doesn't matter because we're like, ever evolving exactly we? we're ever yeah. evolving so we're constantly creating a new version of ourselves yeah exactly do you ever look back now like you talk about purpose do you ever look back now and go you know like some of the most traumatic things we go through in life you have no idea why they happened to you mm-hmm. at that moment in time do you look yep. back now and go maybe maybe that happened to me because now I have a voice mm-hmm. yeah. and all these other people out there that could be in a really hopeless situation right now, I get to put a voice to that and yeah. I get to be the hope and I get to give inspiration through art or through my words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love thinking about that because I do remember when I was in hospital, like even though I did have a good experience, it was still such a devastating and traumatic time and I remember just laying in my bed every night and thinking like I wish there was someone that I could look up to or talk to that was going through this. And even though now I know there's so many people that have done that and that put their stories out there, I don't know, back then I just couldn't find anyone that I could relate to that I could look up to and, you know, take a leaf out of their book. So I to be that for someone else is just, like, that's so special to me. And I get a lot of messages from whether it's nurses or physios that work in spinal wards and they're like, I always tell my patients to follow you as soon as they come in. Mm. And that, like to me, that's mm. just the best thing in the world. That's so special. Yeah. It's like that, what's that saying? Like be who you needed when you were younger. Yeah. And even though I never even intended for this to be the route that my life took or I didn't intend to share my story like this, it's so nice to just see a full circle moment of like, oh, I am the person that I was hoping mm-hmm. hoping to find. God, mm. I love that. I know that's really special. Mm. How soon after your accident did you decide that you wanted to be here and that you wanted to progress? Or is that something that as soon as you were in hospital, you were like, this is it, I'm on the road to betterment. Yeah. I'm not taking no for an answer. You know, that definitely wasn't how I felt in the beginning. So from the moment I realised I was paralysed and I was screaming out for someone to find me, I just thought to myself like, okay, as soon as someone does find me, like I'm just going to tell them to leave me. Like I want to die. This is it. I don't. And it's funny because when I was falling, 
I was, I didn't want to die. I was like, I want to survive so badly. But then just a minute later, I was like, oh, maybe dying wasn't the worst thing. Maybe living a life that I don't know how to live when I'm paralyzed is even worse. And so I, I don't feel that way anymore, obviously. (laughs) But I, yeah, I was like, nah, this is it for me. And I, my biggest fear wasn't that I would never walk again. It was that I would never feel happiness again. I didn't know that it was possible to live through something so traumatic and to lose part of my body and to feel happiness. So that was always my biggest fear. And for the first few days, I was just gutted, devastated, feeling so sorry for myself. And then maybe like a week later, I really don't know what changed, but one morning I just woke up and I was like, what am I doing? Like something just seemed really different and I could just think so clearly and I could think, okay, this has happened and there's absolutely nothing I can do to take it back no matter how much I want to. So I can either be paralysed and depressed and isolated and not want to talk to anyone and not want to do anything ever again in my life or I can be paralysed and try to live a happy life regardless because I realised either way I was going to be paralysed, either way I was going to be in that hospital so I just had to change my mindset and I thought, okay, maybe like, maybe I can be happy and maybe this isn't the end for me, even though it's not how I foresaw things playing out. Maybe I could find another way. So you're an incomplete paraplegic. Yeah. What does that mean? So basically there's, yeah, there's complete and incomplete. And complete means that your spinal cord is completely severed all the way through, there's absolutely no way that a message can get from one side to the other side. And incomplete, which is actually what most the injury most people get, I guess, is I don't know how a doctor would word this, but the way I say it is it's kind of like your spinal cord is squished. Mm. So messages can maybe get through or maybe they can't. So I have a lot of friends that are incomplete, but yet they are still completely paralyzed and they can't, they can't walk at all. So it doesn't necessarily, incomplete doesn't necessarily mean you'll get better. It's mm. just a, a different way that your spinal cord was injured. So there's motor and there's sensory. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Because I have a real fun story about you. Like the oh, first what? time I ever met you, yeah. I don't know if you remember this, I was just flabbergasted. So Liv, who's a <laughs> good friend of both of ours, <laughs> brought you into the gym to do a session. She walks into the gym, can I add? Like they walk into the gym. Wait, had she pre-told you something? So were yes. you like this girl? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Which is why I was like, I'm not sure what's happening yeah. here. Is this the girl? Is this the girl? Yeah. Hang on a second. <laughs> And I put booty bands around their ankles and I was making them do glute activation. And I said to Liv, I was like, Liv, can you feel your glutes? And she's like, uh, can I feel my glutes? My glutes are on fire. And I turned to Em and I'm like, Em, can you feel your glutes? And she's like, no. And I'm like, okay, so try and maybe turn your feet out. <laughs> I don't think that'll help. Maybe, yeah. you, maybe if you turn your feet out, you'll feel them. She's oh. like, no, Lex, I can't feel. My, I was like, Oh, but I don't understand. How are you standing up? Like, if you can't feel anything, I don't understand. Yeah. And I see you go out now. Some of the photos are in barefoot, but some of them are in high heels. And I'm like, yeah. how is this happening? I can't even walk in high heels. How is she doing this? Like, yeah, it's oh my so God. bizarre. <laughs> we didn't get to that point. You taught yourself how to walk again. Well, yeah, when I was in hospital, so for the three months I was in the spinal ward, I just slowly started getting movement back. So it started, I don't know, there wasn't this one magical day, which is how I always Mm. pitched it, where you get up and you're like, oh my God, I can walk again. So it started with my foot could move, my toes could wriggle, and then I could move my ankle, my knee. It was very gradual. And in the beginning, um, when I was strong enough, I would just use a walking frame, which like you just put your whole weight onto and you're basically just dragging your legs. So that's how it started. And then eventually I went to crutches where I'm still pretty much just using my weight. And then eventually one crutch, 
And then not till like a year and a half later was I walking without without crutches. Wow. But what is interesting and which is what we were talking about before about motor and sensory is during that whole time, even though I was getting some movement back, the sensory side didn't get better and it still hasn't even eight years on, it hasn't improved at all. So I still can't feel from the waist down. And it's so bizarre because, yeah, I didn't know that was a thing. I was like, well, if you can't feel, you can't move. Mm. But there's two separate nerves, I guess. So just because one is broken, it doesn't mean the other one is. So every spinal cord injury is so different. I have friends that can feel everything, but they can't move. It can be any combination of sensory and motor working or not working. But for me, I can't feel, but I can move, which is so bizarre. Yeah. So while you can walk, there's still things that don't work like they used to. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And even with the movement, like my calves are still completely paralyzed. So I can't go up on my tippy toes. I can't Mm -hmm. run. I can't jump. And then the rest of the muscles in my legs are still a bit weaker. So I walk with a limp. And I know you talk a lot about you know, like no subject is taboo for you. Yeah. You're so open and honest and raw and mm-hmm. vulnerable. You mm-hmm. talk about stuff that I don't know that many people, especially females, would talk about mm-hmm. because it is really confronting. Mm-hmm. And for you, so bladder and bowel yeah. comes yeah. along with that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So the four main things that affected me are, yeah, loss of movement, loss of feeling, and then loss of bladder and bowel control. And so same as the loss of feeling, for me, even eight years on, the bladder and bowel hasn't come back at all. So when I was when I was in hospital in the beginning in Switzerland, I was so out of it and there was so much going on that it wasn't until a few days later I was like, oh my God, do I need to pee? Like, oh, you're right. <laughs> should I go pee? I didn't even think about it. And they're like, no, 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 you have a catheter bag in and yeah, right. you know, that's all. But I just didn't even think about it. And then, so I had a bag in, you know, the bag that drains. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I had one of those in for a few months. And then when I was, I guess, well enough and they thought I was mentally you know, okay enough to learn something confronting. They're like, okay, now you need to learn how to use catheters yourself. And so instead of having a bag that it drains into and that just stays in constantly, it's like, it's basically just like a straw that you put inside your bladder, like up your urethra, and then drain into a toilet. And then after you're done, you throw it away. So every time I go to the bathroom, that's what I do. But I had to learn that in hospital. And at first it was so just... Not even, not even necessarily confronting, just, just confusing. Yeah. I was just like, what <gasps> do you mean? Like, <laughs> how? Yeah. And so I had to lay in a bed and this nurse came in and she like put a mirror on my leg, gave me this straw looking thing and was like, find oh your God. urethra. I was like, first of all, I didn't even know. Like, <laughs> was this in sex ed? Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like looking in the mirror and it's just like this tiny, tiny thing. And then this straw she gave me so thick, I was like, just like, come on, (laughs) come on, that's not going in there. And so she's like, okay, put that in there. And it was just so difficult. I just couldn't comprehend it for hours I was in there. And I was like, I was just getting so overwhelmed and Mm. upset, not because, yeah, not because it was awkward with her or not because I, I don't know, just, but just the thought of, oh my God, this is what I'm going to have to do forever. Every time I need to go, how on earth am I going to do that? Yeah. But it's just so cool to now see that now I I can do it without a second thought. Yeah. And, but back then it was so impossible and I couldn't even see a glimmer of hope where one day it would be normal and it would be easy. But now it truly is. It's just like it's so normal to me now and it's so simple and it's just so cool to know that we're capable of adapting to things even if we never thought we could. I love that, I love the adaptability. That. Which, yeah. Because yeah. I was going to ask you about resilience because mm-hmm. I did a podcast recently and 
they asked me whether I, like what I thought resilience was and whether I thought it could be taught. And I was very much of the opinion, I still am, of like resilience is experience. Like it comes from experience. And I think like during COVID, one of the biggest things that I noticed was that people who've been through significant or traumatic events in their life and have hope at the other end, they've come out the other side, they have this inherent knowledge that they've made it through something so that whatever else is thrown at them, they're kind of like, it doesn't matter yeah. what happens here, I'm going to get through it. Is that kind of how you feel about stuff in your life yeah. now? Yeah, oh, 100%. So I often, one of the main messages I get on Instagram is whether I, I don't know, I like doing activities where I'm outside and maybe they're dangerous. I don't really see them <sighs> as dangerous, but whether it's like jet skiing or like walking along, I don't know, a cliff or like whatever it is, I, one of the main messages I get is like, aren't you scared? And what I what I feel is kind of what you were saying before. It's like, I am sometimes scared, but I don't feel scared that something's going to go wrong. Like maybe it will, maybe I, that's not in my control, but I feel confident because I know that if it does go wrong, I'll be able to handle it. Yeah. So I think when you've, yeah, when you've gone through something and you realise, oh, I'm actually capable of going through stuff, which I don't think we do know until we mm. do go through stuff. Like yeah. there's, if someone told me, that I was going to have this accident, I would have thought, absolutely no way. Like, there's no way I'm getting through that. So once you have that knowledge about yourself, things seem a whole lot less scary because you know, you know that you'll be able to get through it. Yeah. So your life now, like we were talking about, you know, you being a high performer Mm. in athletics before, I watch a lot of the stuff that you do, especially when it comes to art. And what do you, like, what does success mean to you? Like, for your life to be successful, mm-hmm. what needs to happen for that? Like, mm. are you there now? Especially going from a high-performance athlete yeah. to having this, you know, happen in your life and having to create a different version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think, okay, hold on. I feel like I have two separate answers for this. So what is success to me is this is a really cheesy answer. But I feel, I just remember, and flashing back to what you said in the beginning about how I was awake for the fall Mm. and the moment of impact, which not many people have, even though that was horrible and at the time it was really traumatic to have that memory, in hindsight, I'm glad I am because I think I can remember so vividly how it felt to think that I was about to die. And I remember so vividly thinking, oh, if I do die right now, like I'm not happy with my life. I wasn't a positive person. I wasn't, I just wasn't like a go-getter, really. I wasn't someone that had any appreciation for anything. I was just kind of going through the motions. And I was still so young, but I just wasn't, I wasn't really a positive person in any regard. And so because I have such a clear memory of having deep regret that I would die and not be happy with where I was, to me, success is the next time I'm in that situation, hopefully not falling from the sky, (laughs) but hopefully when I'm really old, laying on my deathbed, and I'm faced with that situation again where I know that I'm about to die, I will think, oh, okay, like I've done everything I want to do. I know I was a good person. I was really proud of who I was. And having that mentality and being at peace with it and like to me that is what success is, not necessarily anything on paper that I've achieved, but just knowing that I was proud of who I was. Yeah, amazing. Mm-hmm. I get this incredible energy from you even prior to meeting you in person, face-to-face, of you are just such a lover of life. Yeah. Like Mm. it comes across like you're very authentic. You're so Mm. genuine in being you and I like I just get that so energetically from you that you are just such a vibrant human being. 
Um, what are your accessories? What were your accessories that you used during your recovery in order to, you know, build yourself into the person that you are now? Yeah. Well, honestly, the main thing that I've gained from my whole accident and everything I went through is just having gratitude. And I know gratitude is something that I feel like it's really thrown around now. Mm. We talk about it all the time and we all know to be grateful. But the amount that that alone changed my life, and I don't yeah. mean just writing a list every night before I go to bed mm. of three things I'm grateful of. It's like when I was laying in hospital and I looked out the window one day and I saw the sun was setting and it was pink and beautiful and I just I started crying. I was like, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And before my accident, I genuinely don't think, this is really dumb, but I don't think I realised that there was a sunset every day that you could go and watch and that it was going to be beautiful and that even if you were having a bad day, you could watch it and you would feel at least a little bit better. I don't think I'd ever thought about that. I think it's just noticing little things because the little things are the big things. So whether it's, yeah, whether it is a sunset or whether it's a tiny thing that someone does for you that actually means a lot, it's just noticing the little things because otherwise we could go through life missing all these magical little moments that happen every day, waiting for the big things when really like they're all around us, you know? So yeah, I think that's what really helped. Oh, and then the main gratitude obviously is being told I will never walk again Mm. and then being able to walk again. It's like how? (laughs) Yeah. That's mind blowing. So having that appreciation for my body, not just my life and everything in it, but my body for everything that it can do. And even when I was still paralysed, I was so grateful for my hands. And that's why I started drawing because I was in the spinal ward and most people in there were quadriplegics and they couldn't use their arms and hands at all. So I was like, okay, what can I do with my hands? Because I'm so lucky to have my hands. And that's how I started drawing. So I think the key thing is to focus less on what you lost or what you don't have and just think, okay, even though I've lost a lot, what do I still have? Or even what have I gained from this situation? So true. Yeah. You are so creative. Your artwork is phenomenal. Oh, and let's also phenomenal. take a, yeah, let's take a moment to appreciate the fact that you raised what was it, one hundred five thousand selling your art mm. for the bushfires. That was mind blowing to me. That was incredible. Crazy. But that's yeah. like what a selfless act. Like mm-hmm. there's so much that some people could say you have to be angry for, or resentful for, mm-hmm. or things that have been taken away from you. Like you said, you have found a channel of just positivity and gratitude. And how and to you, express and, yourself. And, and giving back. Yeah. yeah. And it's just cool to know that you never know where something is going to lead. Like mm. when I started drawing because I was bored in bed and wanted to use my hands, I didn't think anyone would ever see it, let alone I didn't know it would ever turn into something that had the potential to, yeah, make a difference with the fires or something like that. So it's just... Did you draw when you were younger? Like, were you creative like that? Nah, literally never. I was just bored in hospital and thought, oh, I'll draw some cards for the nurses. What an incredible talent to realise that you have. Like, hey, I can actually draw it. I'm really good at it. Exactly. (laughs) But it's also such an incredible outlet as well, like meditation, like journaling, um, and like those other types of accessories that you would use. Would you say that that was something that obviously helped you along your, yeah, you know, recovery? Sure. Very therapeutic because mm. especially the type of drawing I do, you don't need to think. I'm not drawing mm. objects or anything. It's just patterns. So I really, and it doesn't matter where the pattern goes. Like it's just whatever happens, happens. So you can really switch off, which was definitely a useful tool for me in hospital yeah. when it was really overwhelming and there was lots to think about. When I would draw, I could just really zone calming? out. Calming? Yeah, very calming. Yeah, right. Yeah. I love that as well because I also find like giving back yeah. mm. is one of those things as well. Like if you're not in a great headspace, just giving back or being yeah. kind or like a random act of kindness, there's so much 
science and research behind that being so good for your yeah. mental health. Yeah. Like Absolutely. the help is high. So mm-hmm. so you are you are dating. Yes. <laughs> I love these. I love daddy stories. Jenna oh and I know how much I love like, daddy stories. Are we really getting into this? Because let's not start with Alexa. Well, no, <laughs> because I feel like you would have some great first date, mm. like, stories. Yeah, as in post-accident? Yeah. Let me think. Oh, the funniest one was when it was like a movie. Um, it's not that funny. It's probably a really <laughs> anticlimactic story. But I met this guy on... I don't know, Tinder or something, which I think it was the first guy I ever met on Tinder too. So I was like really nervous. <laughs> and I I think I was still walking with crutches at this point and I was like still feeling really unsafe in my body and I was like this is a really big thing for me to leave the house and meet this stranger. Yeah. So anyway, went out for dinner. Don't even think dinner. Don't think we'd even ordered dinner yet. And we were just talking and, and then he's like, hey, so I'm just getting the feeling that you're not going to have sex with me tonight. And I was like... Yeah, yeah. Like, bro, I can't even really walk. And then um, he's like, okay, well, I might just um, head off. Yeah, out. (laughs) And he literally just got up and walked away. What? And so that was my first story back into dating post-accident. So I was like, this is really good. Oh, this, this is, is going well. This is, this going, is going well. Really well. I'm clearly <laughs> accepted. Um, that was a, yeah, I was I was sitting there for so long and I was like, oh, I think I'm being pranked. Like, I reckon <laughs> oh, my he's God. coming back. I love really. that you thought that way, though. <laughs> I was like, like, did you take it to heart? No, I honestly was laughing because I was like, that is the funniest thing. Oh like, it was gosh. like a movie. He just, because he had no shame. He's like, all right, well. Um, and I was like, at least it was honest. Oh, my gosh. In saying that, so you are in a really happy relationship. Mm-hmm. Do you think it says a lot about the person that you're with, that to um, how happy you are and how, you know, what your relationship is like now, the type of people that you attract into your circle? Mm. Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know, I think in terms of me dating with my injury, definitely didn't turn out to be as bad as it was from that first guy. Couldn't get much worse, let's be Couldn't honest. Couldn't get much worse. <laughs> but yeah, Tommy, so he's my boyfriend. He's just very accepting and understanding. And I don't know if this is relevant at all, but he's also a type 1 diabetic. So I feel like he just understands, I don't know, medical yeah. life and yeah. having to rely on things outside of you to live and stay alive. And yeah, he's just really supportive and never made me feel bad for not being able to do something or, yeah, just really great guy. Mm. Beautiful. What is, what's your next goal? What's the next big thing for you? What are you working towards at the moment? Yes. So this is a odd answer you might not uh, relate to, but I, yeah, I'm not really like a goal person, which is conflicting because of Mm. what I said earlier about having goals in hospital. (laughs) Um, But I don't know. I, I don't know if it's because when I had my accident, I, I was like, on this big trip, I was traveling the world and I had so many plans. Mm. And then life happens and you're like, what's the point in planning when yes. so many things could could happen and you don't even get there? And I guess a lot of people also learned that with COVID last year. It's like you can make plans, but they're not necessarily going to stay that way. So I think it's not that I don't look forward to things or I don't um, have dreams that I'm working towards. It's just mainly, I don't know, I don't try to focus too hard on any set goal because I don't want it to take away from what I, I never want to be unhappy with where I'm at now. You're in the moment. Because I'm working towards something. I want to be okay with where I am and then still, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's actually I, really refreshing because you always hear I people have that. to be structured and they've got a morning routine and oh, this God, is what it takes to be me. successful. <laughs> I love the fact yes. that you were just literally winging it Yeah, and living life yep. to the moment. I think so much can be said for having that attitude. I love 
like you're living life mindfully. Yeah, yeah. Mm. To me, that's that's the way I would explain mm. it, that you're living life mindfully and you're Being just present. going with the, f- yeah, mm. present. Being present. I, yeah, I do, I do feel that sometimes, and obviously I'm not saying that having goals is bad, but for me, this is just something that I've learned. I feel we can always be in waiting, like whether it's we're waiting to reach that goal, waiting to have kids, waiting to get married, waiting for the job promotion, mm. whatever it is, that we're never really thankful. And even when we get the thing, there's always going to be another thing. Yeah. Or if when we get the thing, we realize like, oh, okay, I got everything I wanted, but now what? Yeah. Like, yeah. So. And also know. like yeah. there's something to be said for not being attached to an outcome. Yes. That's right. Like, that's, just yeah. being able yeah. to be happy with what you're doing and who you are and everything yeah. that's coming up in your I life think- without it being related to when I get this, I'm going to be happy. Yeah. When I lose weight, I'm going to be happy. When I get that job, I'm going to be yeah. happy. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind of, I love that. So. I actually pulled something from your writing that I absolutely love. I think people often look at people who have overcome adversity and assume that from day one we chose to fight. That's not always true. Before things were good, before anyone ever thought of me as inspiring, before I decided that my life was worth living, things were just plain shit. Before my pain was transformed into growth, that's all it was, pain. I absolutely love that statement because I feel like in a movie, the hero's journey would be that pivot point where they were like, something happened and you know what? They turned it around and were like, from this moment on, I want to live, I want to be here, I want to be happy. You have come so far and I want to know what advice would you give the audience when they're at that point where they're, I don't want to say struggling because I don't like that word. Mm -hmm. I, I like the term being challenged. Yeah, yeah. When they're being challenged with motivation or a commitment towards something, what would you tell them? Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, first of all, I don't remember writing that, so I love but it. It's it like it hearing amazing. it from a stranger. I was like, oh. <laughs> I would do the voiceover for anything that comes up. <laughs> um, okay. What advice would I give? Well, I so this is a really random story that I kind of gave myself advice without meaning to. You know when your past self does something and you're like, thanks. (laughs) So the day of my accident, I was meant to go for a run right before I went skydiving because running was like my thing. It was my happy place. It was just, and we were in the Swiss Alps, so it was going to be beautiful. And then I just was feeling really lazy and thought, oh, nah, I'll just go tomorrow. And then obviously the next day I was laying in hospital being told I'll never walk again, let alone ever run again. And I just remember thinking like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I passed up an opportunity to do something that I know makes me so happy and something that I love so much when I could have easily done it. And now I might never get to do it again. And so I got the notes section on my phone and I wrote, if you can, you must. And I meant it in relation to running. Like if you can ever run again, you must do it because you need to remember you need to remember how it feels to not be able to do something you want to do. And I never wanted to forget that feeling. And even now, eight years later, I still can't run. But a few years ago, I found, I was going through the notes in my phone because I was like, I wonder if if I wrote any notes back then because I don't really remember doing that. Um, And I saw it. And when I read it, I was like, hold on, this actually relates to so much more than just running because We never know, not even to be morbid, but we never know when will be the last time we do something and not necessarily because we're going to have an accident and not be able to do it again. But even as we get older, like there's there's always going to be a last time that we do something Mm. and we don't know when that's going to be. And so if there's something that you can do and you love to do it and you feel the urge to do it, then my advice would be 
to do it while you can and to do it before it's too late and before you have the chance to wonder what if or before, yeah, like the parachute doesn't open, you know? Yeah. So. Wow. I think we're going out on a high here. I spoke to one of your best friends yesterday. Did she give you some goss? She did. (laughs) No, I actually knew that you guys already did this, but I love that you do this. Mm -hmm. Every time, she told me every time you guys finish a phone call, you end with a whole bunch of positive affirmations. Yes. I, something a little I prepared earlier. Oh, okay. I thought I would start us off here and okay. we could go around and okay. we could swap out some positive oh, I love affirmations. That. Oh, okay. But I just like to point out, I just like to point out beforehand, when we do end a phone call, it's not like one each. We It could go for like 10 minutes. Babe, it could oh be longer God. than got, the whole phone call. We just keep going and then at some point we're like, got to okay, go. Okay, we, like, we have yeah. to stop. Okay, bye. Okay, okay. I've got seven. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'll start. Uh, all right. I hope. Okay. Someone we'll go around to my this mind. way. Okay, go. Okay. okay. Winning doesn't always mean coming first. Be the change you wish to see. I am doing my best. It always seems impossible until it's done. Love that. The world is your oyster. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I'm in love with myself and my body. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. I've never said that one before. I'm going to use Neither it. Right. In front of the mirror. Yeah. Self-love, baby. You always pass failure on the way to success. Oh, you guys are banger ones. I feel like I use the really generic ones that I use every phone call. Um, if you can, you must. That's a quote by Ooh. M. Carey. Oh, oh. <laughs> yes. I think we should stop there. That's I think great. we should stop there. Yeah. I know. Love I know. It. Oh, well, but I, you have so many more you want to use. I I like, the, the one I was going to end oh, on was okay. like the difference between ordinary and extraordinary is that little extra. And you, you my friend, you. are the extra. Absolutely. Oh, Thank yes. you so much for joining us <laughs> Thank today. You. And you are an absolute inspiration to so, so many people, including myself. So thank you so yeah. much for joining thank us. And so if, people, if people want to find you, where do they find you, Em? Where do they find your designs? I was going to say on the Gold Coast. <laughs> um, my street address is... <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> no. um, on Instagram, it's M underscore Kerry. And I have a website where I sell my drawings as well. It was amazing having you here today. I couldn't think of anyone who wouldn't take something away from yeah. today. Yeah. Oh, that's You're so amazing. Lovely. I feel Thank like I so could have kept talking to you guys all day. This so, is great. Well, likewise. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you, yes. Em. How Fitness Saved My Life is hosted by me, Action Alexa. And me, Jenna Louise. Producer Tina Madelov. Audio production by Nikki Sitch. And executive producer Jennifer Goggin. Listener.